0: Bible reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one that led Israel in their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler." When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he became king, and he reigned for forty years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and lame could warn you off. They thought David could not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. This is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the City of David. He built up the area around it with the tenants' terraces inwards And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Israel. Amen.
1: Well, good morning again. My name is Adam. If uh, we haven't met, I have the privilege to serve as the lead pastor here. And today, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series called Reign of the King. We're embarking on an eight-week journey through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Now, you might be thinking, second what? Now, if you haven't read or maybe even heard of the book of 2 Samuel, I get it. It's part of the Old Testament, which we tend to neglect. Uh, It seems not immediately relevant for our lives. I mean, it tells us about events that happened thousands of years ago in a land far removed from our own. And so you might be wondering, what what relevance does this have for our lives? lives? Why are we devoting eight weeks to looking at this book of the Bible? And that I think is the the first part of the answer. It is part of the Bible. And we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And that every part of it is for our good and for our instruction. And we believe that all the different parts of the Bible are telling us one big story. The story of God's rescuing, redeeming love in Jesus Christ. And what I really, really hope that we'll see in coming weeks is that Second Samuel is an incredibly important part of this big story. But not only is 2 Samuel an incredibly important part of the Bible, it's also an incredibly thrilling story. Let me set it up this way. Imagine I told you that there was a show coming out on Netflix Very soon. And this TV show was all about an incredibly handsome young king. And this king was an incredibly brave and fierce and skilled warrior. He would lead his armies into battle, he could kill wild animals with his bare hands. He was a warrior. But he was also gentle and sensitive. He played the harp, he wrote poetry. He would sing, he was kind to his enemies. I mean, this was one of those guys that could do it all. But he also had a weakness when it came to women. In fact, he committed adultery with a married woman and then had her husband murdered to cover it up. He had multiple wives and many different children, which is part of the reason why his family was so dysfunctional. In fact, one of his sons would lead a coup against him, try to take the throne from him. Another one of his sons would would repeat his own sins and would force himself on his half-sister and then be murdered in revenge by his half-brother. I mean, this was a man who was incredibly successful in his career, but his family was a mess. This man also faced civil war. Violent battles, love triangles, people being assassinated, shanked and beheaded. If I told you there was a story, a show coming onto Netflix that had all of that, I'm certain that you would want to watch it. Now this is basically the story of 2 Samuel, which is not a Netflix show but a true historical story. 2 Samuel, of course, tells us about the story of King David who scholars believed lived around 1000 BC. He built his palace in Jerusalem and he reigned over the nation of Israel. Now the nation of Israel still exists to this day and you can still go to visit Jerusalem. Which means this story is telling us not about once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. This is telling us about events of history. And it has something very, very important to teach us. Now, we also need to remember that, as the name implies, 2 Samuel is the sequel. It's part two in a two-part story. Now, if you were around here this time last year, you might remember that we looked at the first half of the story in 1 Samuel. We looked at a sermon series called Rise of the Kings. And if you were here, you'll notice that the artwork for, for this series is very similar to that series. And we've done that on purpose because we want you to remember and to know that these two books are telling us one story. And in the first half of the story in 1 Samuel, let me give you a bit of a a flashback, a recap. We saw the rise of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. Now Saul was Israel's first king, but he disobeyed God and he failed, and so he was rejected by God. And so that God set apart David to be Israel's king. But as you would expect, Saul was not going to give up the throne without a fight. And there was a long struggle between Saul and David, which we looked at. Now as we come to 2 Samuel, we see that Saul is gone and David finally ascends to the throne. That's what we just read about in chapter 5. Now you might think, cool, this sounds Wonderful, Adam. Sounds like an interesting story, but how is this going to help me when I leave here today? I mean, I have issues at home, issues in my marriage, issues with my kids. I have challenges at work, challenges at school, and so forth. How is this ancient story going to help me in my day-to-day life? Now, that's a really great question, and I'm glad that you asked it. Because the truth is, today we want everything to be quick and easy. Just tell me what I gotta do and and I'll do my best to do it. Give me the steps to follow. But the Bible doesn't really work like this. The Bible doesn't give us steps, it gives us stories. The Bible doesn't give us lists as to what we should do, it, it shows us the lives of real people. And as we read these stories and as we look at these lives, it's not always obvious who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. I mean, David does some heroic things in 2 Samuel, as we're going to see. But he also does, as I've alluded to, some horrific things. He's a good example in many ways, but he's a bad example in a lot of other ways. And that's because David is a lot like us. David was a man who loved God deeply, but was also deeply flawed. And it's also because David is not the hero of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel tells us the story of David, but it's not about David. Like the rest of the Bible, 2 Samuel is mostly about God. God is the hero of this story. God is the one who is at work in and through the life of David. And this is why we're doing this series. Not just because we want to learn from the life of David, though we do, but because we want to come to know and to love God to look at the promises that God has made and to recall and to marvel at the things that God has done. And so this is where we're going for the next few weeks. And I hope that you have grabbed your copy of the Growth Group Guide. This has further information about 2 Samuel. It has Bible study questions. It has space to take notes. It has a Bible reading plan. And let me just encourage you, if you are not currently reading the Bible, you think, yeah, I really should, but I'm not. Let me encourage you to read 2 Samuel. You will get so much more out of this series if you read the story along with us. So grab your copy of the Growth Group Guide. If you don't have one, you can get them from the Connection Center. And today, we're going to begin our journey together, the first part of the story, in chapter 1, all the way through to verse 16 of chapter 5. Now, if you're perceptive, you'll notice that that is and a half chapters and 116 verses. I just saw some of the looks on your face. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll be out of here before dinner. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We're gonna cover a lot of ground today, but we're gonna go really quickly. I'm just gonna give us a thumbnail sketch of the story. I'm gonna point out a few important lessons along the way, and at the end, I'll tell us what it's all about and what it means for you and for me. So are you ready for episode one in Reign of the King? Now as we hit play, What we see is that the first part of the story begins with a dead body. And kids, you might want to pay particular attention to this first verse of 2 Samuel. This will help you with your sheet, and it will help you to get a lollipop. Verse 1 of chapter 1, after the death of Saul. Now, as I've already mentioned, Saul was the first king of Israel, but he is now dead. And of course, this would seem to suggest that the way is finally open and finally clear for David to become the undisputed king of Israel. But as is often the case with these things, it's not that simple or bloodless. And that's what we're going to see today. In fact, the title for today's sermon is It's a Long Way to the Top. Now, apologies if I've just put an ACDC riff in your head. But God had promised David that he would be the king over all Israel way back, maybe you remember this, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it has been a long and a messy process to get to this point. And now that Saul is dead and gone, it is going to continue to be a long and a messy process because it's a long way to the top. Now, this really should encourage you because this is true for much of life, isn't it? Much of life is messy and difficult and slow. I mean, God's timing is often a little bit slow for our liking, isn't it? Maybe you've been praying about something at the moment and you just wish that God would give you a quicker answer than he seems to be. God's pathway for us can sometimes seem to be very difficult and very messy. And you should be encouraged because this was true for God's king as well. It was a long and a messy journey to the top. And so let's look at this story, which unfolds in four key scenes. The first scene, if you're taking notes, is this. David executes the murderer of Saul. Now that's right away, sounds like a violent start to the story, and that's what we're gonna see. You see, David is in Ziklag, and he is approached by an Amalekite. That's a a foreigner, a non-Israelite. And this man tells David That Israel has been defeated in battle. The people of God have been defeated by the Philistines. And Saul, the king of Israel, and his son Jonathan are dead. Now this news would have shocked David, so he asks this Amalekite, how do you know this? To which the Amalekite basically responds by saying to David, well, I killed him. Now we know that this isn't exactly true because in 1 Samuel 31, we see that Saul actually kills himself. When he sees the battle is lost, he falls on his own sword. So why is this Amalekite trying to take credit for the death of Saul? Why is he lying to David? The truth is he's lying for the same reasons that you and I lie. He's lying for personal gain. He's lying to protect himself and to promote himself. He wants to get in the good books of the new king. He wants a cushy government job. This is why he he comes to David with the crown from Saul's head. He's saying, here you go, I have delivered to you the kingship. And I guess immediately the question is raised, well, will David accept? Will he take the crown from this deceptive Amalekite or will he wait on God's timing? I wonder what you would do if you were in David's shoes. If you had the opportunity to get ahead that is at odds with God's way and God's will. I know what I would be tempted to do. According to Shakespeare, the eldest son of King Henry IV, he was so eager to ru- to rule that he snatched the crown from his dying father's pillow. David shows a little bit more restraint. In fact, David has consistently refused to snatch the crown from Saul. He's had many opportunities, but he has refused to do it. He's content to wait on God's timing, and he doesn't take the crown from this Amalekite. In fact, he says to him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David still shows respect for Saul and for his position as king. He knows that he was a terrible king and that he had been rejected by God, but he was still the king of Israel. And this Amalekite had no right to kill him, which is why David has him put to death. Now the irony is, the Amalekite didn't actually kill Saul. He loses his life for a lie. His attempt at trying to manipulate the situation, lie for his personal gain, it backfires spectacularly. And this same dynamic is at work in our lives. When we lie to manipulate certain situations for our own personal gain to protect ourselves, to promote ourselves, it might seem like we're getting away with it in that moment, but it will always backfire on us. It will always have consequences. Now, God is gracious and kind. He says if we confess he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and so we can step into the light knowing that God does not want to embarrass us. He wants to heal us, He wants to set us free. And we can step into the light knowing that God is at work in our situations and we don't need to lie to manipulate the situation. Now, with David gone, I mean, with Saul gone, you might expect David to be overjoyed. I mean, how would you respond if, if you knew that the kingship was basically now yours? You, you might dance, you might throw a party. David weeps. And kids, you might want to pay attention to this second scene in the story, where David laments the death of Saul and Jonathan. Now, David's usual way of expressing his emotions was to write a psalm, a song or a poem. And that's what he does here. In verses 19 to 27, he writes a lament to express his grief over the death of Saul and especially Jonathan, Saul's son and David's best friend. In fact, listen to what David says about Jonathan in verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now, despite what some people suggest, this is not an expression of romantic or sexual love. This is a testimony to Jonathan's incredible loyalty to David. As Saul's older son, Jonathan was next in line for the throne. But he set that aside and supported David's claim to the throne. David and Jonathan loved each other deeply. David deeply respected Saul's position as king and this is why he deeply grieves their death and he gives voice to his grief in a lament. Now, a lament is not an immediate, spontaneous outburst of grief, though that has its place in the grieving process. A lament is a thoughtful, reflective expression of grief. It can be written down, read, learned, and repeated. Now, in our day, and to our detriment, we are both unfamiliar and uncomfortable with lament. When someone shares deep pain with us, We instinctively want to share something positive. We kind of feel like we need to to move on. But David teaches us here something better. David doesn't sugarcoat his grief. David doesn't quickly move on from his grief. David writes a thoughtful, heartfelt expression of his grief. And this, I think, is something we need to learn to do as well. In fact, in his excellent commentary, listen to what one scholar says, Dale Ralph Davis, I love this. He says, The sorrows and wounds God's people receive from their losses are not miraculously healed after a short time of emotional catharsis. And sometimes in the church, there is such an impatience with grief. Why isn't Alan over Carol's death? Or Connie over Tom's since it's been 18 months? But the lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep and ongoing. And it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief in words that convey our anguish, in images that picture our despair, in written prayers that verbalize our despondency. Why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? Listen to me, it is not unchristian. To It is unchristian to suppress and ignore grief. Which is why we need to recover the practice of lament. Now have you experienced, and I feel a bit silly asking this because most of us have, have you experienced grief in your life? Are you going through grief right now and are you struggling to express that? And let me invite you to read the Psalms of Lament, to use the words that David wrote down to express his grief and his sorrow. Or let me invite you to write down your own thoughtful expression of grief and then offer it up to God. See, when David learned about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he did not rejoice at what he could gain from it. He grieved at what he had lost. He lamented. But this was not the end of David's pain and difficulty. In fact, in the third scene of the story, it gets even messier. We see David's struggle against the house of Saul. You see, with Saul gone, David doesn't just rush ahead to do whatever he thinks he should do. Instead, he stops to ask God for direction. He asks God where he should go and what he should do next. Now, let me ask you, when you reach a critical juncture in your life, do you just rush ahead to do what you think you should do, what you would like to see happen, or do you slow down, do you stop, and do you ask God for his direction? Well, when David asks God for his direction, God directs him to go to Hebron. Again, kids, you may just want to be paying attention there, up to you. Hebron. And so David takes his two wives, yes, you heard that right, two wives, which is already a bad sign of things to come, and he goes to Hebron. Now Hebron was in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, it was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and David there is anointed king over the tribe of Judah. Sorry, Hebron is not a tribe of Judah, Judah is, but Hebron's in there. You're going to find there's lots of names in 2 Samuel. Judah. Judah tribe of Israel, David is anointed king in the south. But meanwhile, in the north, with the other 11 tribes, there is some scheming taking place. You see, Abner, he was the general of Saul's army. Now he knows if David becomes king, he's going to lose his position and his power. He can see his influence beginning to wane. And so he declares that Saul's surviving son by the name of Ishbosheth. He is the king over the northern tribes, the other tribes of Israel. Now, Abner knew, he knew God's promise that David should be the king over Israel, but he doesn't want to lose his position, he doesn't want to lose his power, and so he declares Ishbosheth to be the king in the north. Now, sometimes to obey God is going to cost you, it might cost you a job, a relationship, a position, or popularity. Now, if Abner had obeyed God, it might have cost him his position. But to disobey God, it will cost you far more. It will have consequences. And this is exactly what we see here with Abner. His disobedience, his desire to crown Ishbosheth over David, it leads to a long and a brutal civil war. Look at what we read in verse 1 of chapter 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. But even in the middle of the war, even in the middle of the mess, God is at work. Look at the second half of that verse. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And this is exactly what we see happen in chapter 3. The wheels begin to fall off for Ishbosheth. Abner takes offense at something he says and he defects to David. Now I just think that Abner saw what was coming. He saw that David was getting stronger and stronger and Ishbosheth weaker and weaker and he wants to make sure he's on the right side. So he begins to wheel and deal with David. He, he begins to lobby the leaders of the northern tribes and he convinces them to come over to David. And Abner then travels to Hebron where David is living to seal the deal with a feast. And three times in those verses you'll see the word peace is repeated because that's where it seems we're headed. Peace at last. But unfortunately, Joab, the general of David's army, he hears that Abner's in town and he hears what Abner's been plotting and he is furious. Now, it could be that back in the fighting of the civil war, Abner had killed Joab's brother, Asahel, and he wants revenge. But I also think it's because Joab can see that he might be losing his position and his influence and his power, and so he's upset. And what he does is he pretends that he needs to speak to Abner in private while they're in Hebron, and he shanks him. He stabs him in the stomach, and Abner dies. Now, I told you there's going to be bloodshed, and it gets worse. Now, when Ishbosheth hears about the death of Abner, you might expect him to get angry and to get even. But befitting of his weakened state, he rolls over and he gives up. Verse 1 of chapter 4 When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel became alarmed. Ishbosheth was just a puppet king for Abner, and now with Abner gone, he's got no fight left. And two of his men kind of see what's happening. They see the writing on the wall and they try to get ahead of the curve. They kill Ishbosheth in his sleep and they cut off his head. I told you this was an amazing story, I warned you at the start. And they bring ish head to David and they say, here you go, the kingdom is yours. Now, if only they knew what David did last time, someone tried to present the kingdom to him through violent and deceptive means. And just like with the Amalekite, David refuses to take the crown in this way and he has these two men executed for killing an innocent man. Which leads us to the fourth and final scene, which is the climactic scene in the story, and that is David ascends the throne of Saul. With the murder of Abner, with the murder of Ishbosheth, with the fall of Saul's house, the way really is clear for David to become king. Not just over Judah, but over all of Israel. And this is what we see happen in chapter 5. David is anointed king. The first thing he does is conquer Jerusalem and he establishes it as his capital city. And finally, the promise of God is fulfilled. David is God's king, ruling in God's city over God's people. We've finally arrived. Now, it's taken us a long time to get here, and it's been a long and a difficult and a complicated and a messy journey. A journey that's been filled with war and betrayal and deception and murder. And yet, in the midst of that mess, God... Has been faithful to his promise. And this is the important truth that we can learn from this episode. Though life and human history is messy and painful and difficult, God is at work in the mess to fulfill his promise. I mean, throughout the mess of these chapters, God has been fulfilling his promise to David, God has been faithful to his people, God has installed his king. And this is so important because sometimes when life is hard, when life is difficult, when the way is messy, we think that God has forgotten about us or that God has abandoned us. Maybe you're there right now, but the story of David shows us that God is at work in the mess. Even when we can't recognize it, even when it doesn't seem like it, God is at work for our good and his glory. In fact, listen to these words from Psalm 2, which provide the perfect commentary on this story. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. This is what we've seen happen in the story. Abner and Joab throw off God's shackles. They ignore God's commands. They want to do things their own way for their own gain and it leads to chaos and death. And this is the story of human history. We don't want God to rule our own lives. We want to rule our own lives. We want to throw off God's shackles. And the result is chaos and death. So how does God respond to this? This rebellion? Well, the psalm continues. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs at our rebellion. He's not anxious about it. He's not cowering in fear. No amount of opposition or mess or difficulty can stop God and his purposes. He will install his king, and his king will deal with our mess. Now, David ultimately will fail to do this. His sin will lead to further chaos and further death. But that's because David is not God's ultimate king. David is a pointer to God's true king, to God's coming king, the one who would come to ultimately deal with our sin, our mess, and our rebellion. And when Jesus Christ entered into human history, he was called the son of David. Because he was the one to whom David was pointing. He was God's true king. And like David, Jesus refused to snatch at power. When the devil offered Jesus the kingdoms of the earth, if he would simply bow down to him, he refused. Like David, Jesus entrusted himself to God. In the garden of Gethsemane, the night before the cross, he cried out, not my will, but yours be done. But unlike David Jesus did not spill the blood of others. He allowed his own blood to be spilled for you and for me. He was the king. He is the king. And he went to the cross. And on the cross he died in our place for our mess. To pay the penalty for our sin. And there was a day coming when he will return and he will deal with our mess once and for all. See, God has installed his king. And the question is is he your king? You can try to run your own life and do things your own way, but it's a recipe for disaster. Just ask Abner and Joab and Saul. Or you can surrender yourself to God's king, Jesus Christ. And his invitation to you is this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by the mess and the pain and the difficulty of life. And I will give you rest. Maybe you're walking with Jesus and you've become discouraged by the mess recently. Maybe there's something you've been praying about and God's timing seems to be taking too long for you. Maybe you feel as if God has abandoned you or left you. And the temptation is to take matters into your own hands, to turn to other saviors, to walk away from God. But that would be a mistake. Because God is faithful and is at work in the midst of the mess. It's a long and a difficult journey to the top. But God is with us every step of the way he will fulfill his promises and he will be faithful to his people. Let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are at work in our mess, for our good, and for your glory. And Lord, there are some of us here this morning who need to surrender ourselves to King Jesus. We need to believe his promise that if we come to him, he will give us rest. And Lord, maybe we've taken our eyes off of Jesus because of the difficulties and the pain of life recently. We want to refocus and we want to turn our attention And put our faith and our hope and our trust in King Jesus. The one that you have installed on your mountain. Oh Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, help us to put our hope, our faith and our trust in you. The one who is always faithful to his promises and faithful to his people. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen church, would you stand? Hear this blessing before we sing together. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so may the Lord surround you from this time and forevermore. Amen.